I never underestimate the power of one indoor plant to become the catalyst to really hook people into a greater connection with nature. It can all begin with one little succulent and then it's just out of control. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. Hello and welcome. My name's Rebecca Giggs. I'm an author from Burlu, known too as Perth. And it's my pleasure to join you today wherever you are, in your home or on your commute. Maybe you're taking a walk in your neighbourhood. Whatever ground is under your feet, let me mention the ground that's under mine. I'm not, in fact, on the West Coast in the sea winds and listening out for Carnaby cockatoos or 28 parrots today. I'm in Nam, Melbourne, on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. For myself and on behalf of the guests that I will shortly introduce to you, I offer our respects to Elders past and present and to the Elders of all communities that this conversation reaches. I recognise that in a nation misrepresented as being founded on ceded sovereignty, the legal and moral consequences of invasion continue to compound. The occasion that brings us together today is Victoria's Nature Festival. The organisation that houses this part of the festival is the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas. And the pathogen that presently keeps us apart is by now known to everyone. Many on the East Coast in Australia find themselves in lockdown today, so as to slow the transmission of the Delta variant of COVID-19, which makes our subject all the more apt. We're talking today about the natural world, why and how it matters to each of us, and what it is that we owe to nature in this time. We begin with a message from Minister Lily D'Ambrosio, Victoria's Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change, on the importance of natural spaces in this moment. Hello everyone. It's great to be here to introduce the In Our Nature panel as part of the Victoria Nature Festival. I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners of this land. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. The pandemic has heightened everyone's appreciation of green open space, and it certainly has for me and my family. And whilst it might be difficult to visit our favourite national park or remote beach right now, we can still access nature at home, in our gardens and nearby in our parks and open spaces. Research tells us that people who are more connected with nature are also more likely to be active in looking after the environment. And the Victoria Nature Festival is all about encouraging people to connect with and act for nature. This year, the festival will provide a virtual window that can help us stay connected to nature and the benefits it provides. The festival supports the goals of Biodiversity 2037. That's the Victorian government's ambitious plan to stop biodiversity decline over the next 20 years. In total, the Victorian government has allocated more than $400 million to biodiversity since the release of our biodiversity plan in 2017. That's the largest investment in biodiversity by a Victorian government in the state's history. We're also supporting people's connection to nature by ensuring communities have access to green local spaces. Now, this includes delivering new and upgraded parks and trails through the $154 million Suburban Parks Program and $106.5 million towards our Victoria's Great Outdoors Program. These programs include new pocket parks and dog parks in our suburbs and upgrades to campgrounds and tracks in our regions. 
However you like to enjoy nature, we are working to make it more accessible for all Victorians. I encourage you to find a way to connect with nature during this year's festival, whether that be by going for a walk in your local area, learning from traditional owners about caring for country, or participating in citizen science. And I'm looking forward to the panel's thoughts on how we can all act to protect Victoria's unique flora and fauna and strengthen our connection with nature. So thank you very much and enjoy. Thank you, Minister D'Ambrosio. I have with me today three guests, Costa Georgiadis, Maddie Miller and Sandro Di Maio. Costa is a gardener. Maddie, a Darug woman, is an archaeologist. Sandro is a doctor. Their passion and engagement with the natural world has produced such varied outcomes as books, television shows, international advisory groups and abundant vegetable patches. You know Costa perhaps already from Gardening Australia on the ABC. Maddie is an advocate for the centrality of Aboriginal knowledge in many quarters, including in urban design and research. Sandro's job is as the CEO of Vic Health. What drives him is a deep interest in the intersection between food, agriculture, science and health. But these are very abstract ways to introduce these people. Let's begin with something a little more concrete and particular with the environments that our guests are found within. I've asked our guests to tell us a little bit about the natural sounds that surround them in the spaces that they live at this point in time. Costa, by way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about the sounds of nature that are around in your place? Well, at this time of the year, and only about a week ago, and with a warm Sydney day, uh, my nature pond came to life and the Perrins tree frogs started their full symphony. It wasn't a, a small contingent in the band, it was the full band. They were back for the spring of 2021, and it is just fantastic. They start to chortle, usually. Some go off a little early, around 3.30, but they normally come in at about 5.30, and they're there right through till the morning. And I also have a little mudlark, and uh, he... he there's, there's two of them, there's a, a male and female, and the male uh, every day takes on the challenge of keeping away another male, which is actually himself, in the glass. And he takes on the windows every morning and uh, clears the space, protects the, the, the local area for him and, and his partner, and they chip away at my vegetables and, oh, there he is, he's just, He's just come to the window now. He, he must have heard me. So, yeah, there's wonderful spring sounds going on around my place at the moment. Beautiful. I did a radio interview recently where, as I was talking to the announcer, who I think was David Astle actually on Radio National, a huge bird of prey suddenly fell into my garden and just stood there on the lawn and it was a live recording and I felt like saying, I, I just have to stop. But like, I just have to rush outside and see what this creature is that suddenly appeared, this, this you know, sudden uh, invasion of the wild into this domestic space that is the back garden. Maddie, can you tell us a little bit about the natural sounds that feature where you are? Yeah, I'm located on beautiful Woiwurrung Wurundjeri country um, out in an area known formerly as Banyul and always as Banyul, uh, where the Heidelberg School was. So it's quite a beautiful sort of hilly area. Um, 
and I live on a main road. So I feel that a lot of the nature sounds are sort of uh, drowned out by the sound of cars. And one of the benefits of lockdown, I guess, is that the cars have not been as frequent. But as we've seen the shifting of seasons and, and not really talking about Western seasons, um, more Wurundjeri seasons here, and we've moved into Pornit tadpole season, I have been besieged by insects. Um, <laughs> and so the sort of sound of blowflies and bees um, and the sort of weary looking out for spiders in my house is what I've been doing at the moment. Um, it's nice to see as the warmer weather, the animals that sort of wake up and, and come out as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Wurundjeri seasons? I'm afraid I don't know much about it. So we're coming into tadpole season now. Mm -hmm. What comes after tadpole season? Um, I'm certainly no expert on um, Wurundjeri seasons, but there's in general six or so seasons. Um, and I think that's one thing that's been really wonderful over lockdown is that I've been able to observe more closely what's happening around me. And um, yeah, on my country, on Dara country, you know, we have different seasons as well. And, and those seasons sort of respond to, you know, a lot of different things, what animals are moving, what the air's like, what's happening in the soil. And it's always, once you sort of become aware of these things, um, you start to get really aware of, of how people talk about you know, oh, winter's dragging on in Melbourne. And you think, no, it's not. This is wiring. This is wombat season. This is how it's supposed to be. It's a long, cold time. Um, and it's, you think about the, the, the resources that Wurundjeri people would be accessing in this time. And it's things like wombat, which are very dense in the way in which um, their nutrients are. So you can access the bone marrow, a lot of bone marrow in wombats. And so it becomes, for me, it's sort of a, a meditative, reflective experience, trying to understand the seasons as they pass through this place. Um, so, yeah, I'm certainly no expert on Wurundjeri seasons, but I definitely would suggest that everybody look up the seasons of the place where they are and just carefully become more aware of them. I love this idea of a more attentive um yeah, a, a more attentive focus on insect life as well, which is so transient and fluctuating and changes with different kinds of explosions of populations. And I can certainly remember one period after a tropical storm in Sydney where um, my house just suffered from a, a, a massive explosion of wolf spiders, huge wolf spiders, like the size of your thumbs running up the outside of the building. Um, it was like something in a fairy tale. They just kind of swarmed. And they started eating lizards, like little little skinks, you know. So I could see them kind of running around pursuing these lizards, which seemed like a total subversion of the ordinary ecological order of things. Um, but I do remember that, that kind of, you know, moment of an explosion of an insect population can really feature in your environmental memory and imaginary. Um, thank you. Sandra, tell us what you're listening to in your surroundings over the last little period. Yeah, thanks. Well, I live on Wurundjeri land. I live in Northcote, just north of uh, Melbourne. And um, it's it's the, I suppose, beginning of the warmer months. And so there are some really amazing sounds. It's a beautiful time of the year. It's one of my favourite times of the year. Um, I live near a main road. I live in an apartment. Um, but uh, 
you know, it's a time of, of strong winds um, and it's a time of heavy rain. Um, you know, the, the trees, the early leaves are just starting. There are beautiful flowers. You know, I love, I love exploring the back streets and taking photos of some of the flowers um, that are in bloom. But my favourite would have to be Merry Creek, which is just near my house. Um, and just a few days ago, it flooded uh, in some heavy spring rains and the sounds of the, you know, the sound of the rain and then the still that comes after it uh, and then walking along the creek uh, and the sounds of, of it coming back to life as the, as the flooding waters subside and, and start to expose, you know, freshly kind of green shoots and, um, you know, bird life is all, all starting to go through the start of its, its life cycle. Um, in fact, I, I, I love this time of year so much that it's kind of become a bit of a joke with many of my staff because I've got into the habit of taking the first hour, an hour and a half of my working day uh, on, on phone, phone calls or Zoom calls outside with my headphones on. And, and they know when I'm doing that because they can hear the bird calls in the background. And, um, and, and so they sort of joke, oh, yep, Sandro's, Sandro's taking the calls from the road again because uh, he's somewhere along the creek. They can hear the water and they can hear the, the birds. And I think it's, um, you know, it just reminds us of our connection to nature. If you find that transition of the season into warmer weather when, you know, creatures are more abundant, um, really uplifting, it, how do you deal with the colder months, the darker season? Do you find that that affects your mood too? Well, it's funny you ask that. I spent about seven of the last 10 years of my life living in Scandinavia and the last two years before coming back to take this job in Norway. And of course, we had about 20 hours of, of darkness in the winter and we had 20 two hours of sunshine in the summer in Oslo for the two years that I lived there uh, and, and in Copenhagen, very similar for another three years before that. Um, it definitely affects me um, and it, it affects our physiology. You know, we know that it, it affects our mood. Um, the light has uh, effects through our circadian rhythm on our hormones, uh, our, our happy hormones, our stress hormones, our sleep hormones. Um, and, and those in turn have effects on all parts of our body, including um, you know, our skin, our brain, our risk of chronic disease, even our immune system. So, um, you know, the old kind of thought that winter was um, the beginning of hibernation for all creatures, uh, including humans, um, there is definitely a physiological link and, and, and um, you know, we can, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second, but, you know, that, that just brings us back to the importance of, of um, nature bathing and, and, you know, with that getting time outside uh, in the fresh air and the sunshine. Mm. Are there population-wide effects of that then? I mean, do we see those kinds of, um, you know, in the Scandinavian peoples, do we see particular kinds of, I don't know, mood, mood effects or physical conditions that emerge because of that yeah. darkness? Really interesting question. So the short answer is yes. Um, there is a strong correlation between even... So most of the autoimmune diseases that we know of in the world, there's a strong correlation with um, prevalence. So how, how common they are, they get more common the further you move away from the equator. Um, and, and they kind of peak in the no northernmost parts of the world where it's dark for long periods and southernmost parts of the world where it's dark for long periods. So where there's that heavy um, uh, you know, um, influence of the seasons. And it is thought to be linked to... Um, sun exposure through vitamin D. 
uh, as well as through the hormones we talked about before. Um, and it's probably also, there's also probably a genetic component. Um, but certainly in winter, you, you do see um, in Scandinavia differences in productivity. Um, you know, work workplaces do provide that greater flexibility in winter. They allow people to take a longer lunch break in the two hours of sunshine that they have during the day. Um, and, um, and then in the summer, uh, you know, the lifestyle changes so significantly. So you see both um, social changes, significant social changes and the behaviours of, of people between seasons in countries where they see really big differences um, in the length of days. But you also see uh, biological changes at the population and at the individual level, for sure. Mm, fascinating. I didn't know that. So Sandra mentioned bathing in nature, immersing oneself in nature in this moment in time. How are we connecting with nature during lockdown? What are the ways that you found that are different or perhaps continuous with how you were behaving before that have nourished you in the natural world in this period? I mean, it's been a, it's been a fascinating time. So if you look at the Google mobility data over the last uh, period of, of lockdowns and, and even those states who haven't gone through lockdowns, um, We've seen some really interesting trends in terms of um, changes in lifestyle uh, resulting from the pandemic. We've seen, you know, really that return to local place-based um, living and and such a um, an awareness of health and with that um, local design and and opportunity and and access to um, safe green spaces. I think people are reconnecting with their local neighbourhoods in a way that we haven't seen. Um, for a long time, and um, and and you're seeing, I think, you know, whether it's whether it's what we're seeing in the housing market, or whether it's what you see in the Google data, um, or in terms of um, even internal migration within the country, people are clearly seeing the benefits and valuing the benefits of space, whether it's in their own backyards or in their immediate local environments, um, much more acutely than they were, I think prior to the global pandemic. Mm. Costa, can you speak to that, that point about, you know, connecting to nature through the garden? Yeah, no, I, I think coming off the back of that, um, during last year, Sustain, the Australian Food Network, did a, a pandemic gardening survey, which asked people um, how gardening or was gardening something that they turned to and... There was a massive response, close to 10,000 respondents, 25,000 answers, which were massive answers. They weren't sort of yes, no, um, I've been gardening. These were like some of them one page long answers about the, the therapeutic aspects that gardening um, provided, that, that there was this metronomic connection that was able to be added to this new rhythm of living in in lockdown and, and restrained conditions, let's say. And the garden, I think, the thing about the garden, the thing about being out in nature is that it's, it's non-confrontational, it's apolitical, it's totally independent. Your, your time there is, is not affected by camps or, or contingencies, whether you go out for five minutes or whether you go for a 50 minute walk, whether that's walking down your street 
on a, on a main road or a side street or whether it's walking through the local bushland or a park or a garden. Either way, there's, there's an exchange, there's interaction, there's immersion in your senses. You, you're smelling, you're hearing, you're seeing, you're touching. Um, all, of, all of your day-to-day your, your, your restrictions suddenly open up when you go for a walk. And I, and I think that's what's been most encouraging to see families and groups of people or just groups of two walking. And, and I'll be out on my street garden and I hear conversation. And it's really nice to see families talking and, you know, little ones celebrating that they got to the top of the hill on their push bike or they got three quarters of the way up and, the, and, and I hear them. I literally heard them over months saying, oh, you've made it almost up to this driveway. And, and that's... That, that happens because you're outside and you're doing something with a certain level of certainty, but there's also that uncertainty in nature, that those, those seasonal things that have been drummed into us off a calendar that doesn't fit this land is starting to, and, and, and Maddie mentioned it with the, the, the fact that it's the observations of the now. It's what's, it, what's going on out Outside the window now and what's happening to those lines those lines that were drawn on our calendars were drawn from the northern hemisphere what was here on country was were lines that were drawn by by first nations people and their observations over thousands of years and i think the best part about people being outside in lockdown is that they're feeling the temperature and it's not saying oh it's spring now it's was felt a little while before that so-called date. And, and when Maddie explained the, 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 the seasons, the indigenous seasons that vary from six to eight, and I was speaking with a, a, a senior indigenous um, elder here from Sydney Uni who was saying there's 12 seasons in parts of the country as well. And, and this starts to give us that, that freedom to actually take in what's around us and not be constrained by something that's written because nothing's fixed and, and it's all about what's out the window this minute. Speaking of that sense in which um, nothing is fixed, I think Sandro mentioned earlier walking down the laneways in Northcote and perhaps cribbing a few lemons here and there or something else over the fence. There is a sense, I think, in which private gardens have become a little more public during this period. I mean, certainly we have a fish pond um, out the front of our place at the moment, and there's kids come by and they feed the fish for us, um, which we weren't doing before, but it's given them great pleasure to have responsibility for our goldfish during this time. And I think it's also given the parents some reason to send them off down the street for a walk when they need a 10 minute break. I think that's a really interesting development that's happened during, during lockdown as well. But Maddie, whether it's walking or gardening, how are you connecting with nature at this point in time? Yeah, I think um, having gone through a couple of lockdowns in Melbourne, every lockdown has a different flavour. Um, so this lockdown, I've been uh, collecting um, bark and things like that to make natural dyes. So that's sort of one way that I'm connecting with what's around me and seeing, you know, what we, what I can create with the resources that country's providing, you know, other lockdowns, my nature interaction was sort of animal crossing on the Nintendo switch. 
Um, but I think that, you know, every every lockdown there's been an opportunity to explore what's around me um, or to to kind of, you know, be a bit of a homebody and, and appreciate what I have here. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's there's lots of different ways and small ways in which nature, even if it's just opening your window and allowing the breeze um, to kind of, you know, wash across your face. I think for me, that's always been an affirming thing, country speaking to me through the breeze. Um, and, you know, I've always felt that, you know, I grew up in rural Victoria and so country for me has always been the bush. It's not been other people or buildings, but now being sort of situated in Melbourne, um, country is the room that I'm in right now. It's, it's everywhere. And so, you know, being grounded in place, I think has been really important. Sandra. Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, the, the evidence is building in this space, but it's it, what Maddie said is so true. And, 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 um, we know the power of nature to, to improve health is more than, um, you know, even in many ways, Western science still under, you know, begin, can, can begin to understand. And, and um, in fact, there, there's good evidence that even, uh, you know, plants inside our houses, which again have become so critical during lockdown, you know, early on it was, it was that kind of little bit, um, you know, kind of almost bougie movement of like indoor plants. But actually I think people have realised the importance of even nature, bringing nature into um small inner city apartments, you know, share houses, um, having plants in, in, our, in our home working spaces, the importance that that can have. And again, that's all the evidence supports all of this. It's, you know, we, we, see, we see reduction in stress um, and even in fact, images, sounds or smell, the smell of nature, um, even if they're artificial, that's how powerful nature is, that even posters or pictures of nature um, or, or uh, bringing you know plants inside our houses um, can have a really profound impact on our on our mental and physical health. I wish I could believe that the simulacra of nature, you know, the digital VR goggles and the fake esthers that <laughs> might be piped into my room could give me the same effect as actually taking a hike. I, I would like to believe that at some point in the future there'd be a uh, yeah. marriage between those two. I mean, it's, um, not, it's not the same. The, what we do know is that it, um, it's like, you know, there's good evidence, again, if you, if you run on a treadmill, you don't get the same health benefits as if you run outside. And that's because of the dose of nature and, and, and air and, and um, awe, A-W-E, that you get from being in nature, all of which have really profound impacts on our physiology. But you do still get some benefits even from, um, and Costa will be happy to hear this, even from, you know, pictures of nature, um, sounds of nature so bird sounds you know for example that people listen to or whale sounds as they're going to sleep i mean there's actually some evidence there's good evidence that those things the influence of nature is so powerful that that while they don't replace nature for many people who can't afford or access nature all the time um that they even can have a really powerful impact on our on our health and our physiology which is you know i think is democratizing in many ways costa you remind me of um, the work uh, Stephen Wells, who's a horticultural therapist down in Melbourne, and he explained a project where 
there was a corridor in, uh, I'm not sure which hospital in Melbourne, whether it was the Austin or whatever, but um, they basically put decals of a forest view on either side of this, this big open corridor. And the impact that it had, they didn't tell anyone that they were doing it, and then they just did it, and suddenly people were immersed in it and almost didn't realise that it was there, but they wanted to be there, and then they realised what was going on and that, that they were now sitting in the equivalent of a forest rather than it being this sterile, um, disinfectant, uh, aromatic um, space or, or corridor. And, and, and it, it, it sort of backs up what you're saying, Sandro, about the fact that we, we have so much therapeutic benefit about nature. And it reminds me of when I was living in Europe, I was living in Austria, and I mean, Central Europe has, it's a winter climate, not a summer climate. But the way people adored their indoor plant, or three or four, and they looked after it and they found the warm spot over winter and they kept it going and they loved it. And, and I remember when I came back here, I thought we take it, can take it so much for granted because we all don't, we, you know, most people were, had a backyard or a courtyard or something, whereas everyone over there in Vienna was living in small apartments. And, and, and it makes you appreciate that we have so much on tap that we can allow to give us those therapeutic benefits if we take the first step, if, if, we, if we get out and, and do it. But then equally, now people are inviting it indoors. And the, the inverse of that, once people have filled the indoors, they go, oh, where can I find some more space? Oh, there's a rooftop, there's, there's the street, the nature strip, or what about the community garden? So I never underestimate the power of one indoor plant to become the catalyst to really hook people into a greater connection with nature. And then the, the, the narrative into seasons and then a connection to country and understanding of history. And you, you know, it can all begin with one little succulent and, and, and then it's just out of control. I think this sort of chimes with what Maddie was saying also about natural dying, you know, that there are these processes of cultivation or kind of craft or art making that affect us in moving between something natural and something that we might wear if it's a dyed product or something we might cultivate in a tiny little pot. I think too of the passion for sourdough at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was learning suddenly that their microbial world around them in their inside spaces was unique and that, you know, your sourdough would be different from your neighbour's sourdough because the starter was inflected by different kinds of organisms in the household. There's a way in which we're also learning not just how attached to wild nature, big green spaces we are, but also how important it is to have nature or think about nature on that kind of much more local, um, yeah, interior space setting as well. During the wildlife, during the um, lockdowns, I've been doing some um, work for Wildlife Victoria, transporting native animals. Um, it's the first time I've done this job, but um, at the moment, I'm signed up to pick up um, orphan possums or boobook owls or uh, baby wombats from vets, and then take them to carers or to sanctuaries and ferry them around. And I have to say, it's been such a thrill because. Of course, um, during the pandemic, the 
waiting rooms in the veterinary clinics have been closed. So you drive to a vet's in suburbia and somebody comes out with a pillowcase that's kicking or if it's a possum it's you know might be inside an AFL beanie and then they give the, give that to you and you've got a for you know a half hour or an hour it's your responsibility to keep this creature going and get it to a place where it has refuge um I've also really enjoyed that part of that volunteering has put me in touch with other people who are animal lovers but I also have a permit, which means I can drive outside of the five kilometre radius <laughs> to deliver these animals to their carers. And a few nights ago, when we were delivering one to Glenburn, we stopped on the way back just very briefly on the road and wound down the windows of the car. We're surrounded by trees. And, you know, that smell, that really distinctive eucalypt smell that is dense and kind of, you know, it's it's a bit of rot in the underside of it and... And we just kind of sat in that aroma for two minutes and then we wound up the windows of the car and carried on home. But it reminded me, yeah, absolutely of what we talked about in the beginning. The sensory engagement with nature is just so incredibly powerful. For a lot of people, thinking about nature beyond the local, though, in recent months has become a little bit of a source of distress whether it's because of the IPCC report, the big climate report that's been brought out in recent months, or even because of the pandemic itself, thinking about the initial impetus for the pandemic, which was, of course, a zoonotic disease caused by a human encounter in the natural environment with a wild animal. Most likely people think of that. So how do we kind of marry this sense of in which nature on the global level is becoming a source of distress and anxiety with the kind of immersion in nature that we experience on the local level how do we find action that brings those two spheres together it's a big question i mean i think the you know these some of these big challenges like climate change and even to a degree the pandemic can feel overwhelming uh, it takes away our sense of agency. We start to think, well, what's the point? Or can we really, you know, keep the planet in a safe operating space uh, for for us and for future generations and for the trillions of animals and species? Um, but I think there is something so important about bringing it back to the local and realising that actually at the end of the day, you know, what we do matters um who we are matters the way we interact with our our local natural environment um and even that natural environment itself matters uh and i and i think that in many ways the pandemic over the last 18 months has seen us kind of it's almost forced us to kind of reconcile the global with the local um you know we know that this is something that the the entire planet is facing we know that there are deep structural economic inequities that are meaning that that mean there is no lived single lived experience of this pandemic even in australia but there is certainly you know huge inequities in terms of the challenges being faced by different populations around the world um and yet we've we've narrowed our field of focus down to 5 kilometers down to 2 hours a day um to, to, to kind of keep others safe in the in the understanding that that no one is safe until everyone's safe and I think and I hope I think that there are you know that that this this experience will guide us 
to it, to to respond in a different way um, as we find ourselves at this kind of fork in the road, staring down a very frightening future with regards to our planet and our climate and the wider ecology, or the alternative path, which is one of coming together, understanding how we fit within the global picture, holding governments accountable, and 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 taking that path of of difficult action now to put ourselves in a much safer space later, but also understanding that no one is safe on this planet, no thing is safe unless we all are. So I think the 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 opportunities to understand and distill and take these critical key learnings, the 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 long ignored structural and social and cultural inequities that have got us to this point that have fueled the pandemic that continue to mean that there are multiple and hugely divergent experiences of the pandemic and outcomes of the pandemic and and the the action that we have and, and continue to be willing to take and should be taking as a society to ensure that everyone is safe i hope that that is kind of the turning point the wake up moment for the rest for, for what is the bigger challenge facing us actually as a society, which is the planetary challenge, it's, it's the ecological challenge. Um, you know, so I, I, feel, I feel hopeful that, that the learnings that we take from this time will see us suddenly take that important other path towards, you know, our commitment, the commitments we've made um, and and the commitments we need to now um, deliver on for for the future of our planet. Costa, you must run into many people experiencing this feeling of eco anxiety. What advice do you give when people come to you and say that they're really worried about the natural world? I think the first thing you need to do, or the first thing that I do, if someone does, when someone does talk to me from that perspective is acknowledge it and, and, and don't undermine it or don't try and sugarcoat it or discount it or, or display any, any dismissive like, oh, no, it's all going to be okay and it's happy clappy and kumbaya and give me the guitar sort, sort of thing because in the, in the broad uh, reports that we, we heard recently from the IPCC, you know, these statistics... Are, are very serious, and having having studied this from the time of university, and having having had this interest in it, and seen seen you know a decade go by and and glimmer, and then and then the next decade go by, and then a little bit of a glimmer, and then and then it, it just continues. The wheel keeps turning. But I suppose that looking back on it now, and and these reports, I say, okay, you need to keep your eye on that. You need to have that crosshair in your frame and understand the big picture. There's no doubt about it because if we are, if we are agents of change, we need to understand the field that we're on, not just the immediate field we're in, but the bigger picture. We need to look up above, um, above the mound around us. But in saying that, you cannot wake up every day and read those reports and say, this is my world. Um, the, uh, well, uh, 
you'll just be de you'll be depowered. You you'll be brought down. So for me, what I say to people is understand those ramifications, understand the big picture, have plays that that work away and chip away at that and bring it together in an exponential way. Whereas we can work on our day-to-day -day in more additional ways in terms of adding to the local community garden and adding the numbers there, adding to my street garden, connecting with my local school and adding some more people into that. But then when we bring those groups together, we shift the mathematics to exponential, which is where we then apply that broader number to the bigger picture. But you can't take on like Atlas the world because you'll be crushed. And, and I've sadly seen way too many fantastic people with incredible motivation and power be pierced and then slowly drained out because they didn't regroup, they didn't rest. Um, because when you stand up and take on these things, and, and the thing I say to young people most importantly is do not take the issue on you you address the issue as an independent thing. That does not mean you're not passionate about it, but you are not open to attack because anyone can attack an issue, anyone can attack a cause, but they have no right to attack you as a player. And it's key that we, we build that into the fabric of the generation that's coming forward and having to make those, those, that progress on those big issues give them the, 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 the protection and the understanding. And then once that's there, it doesn't matter what anyone says because they're words. But if those words are allowed to attack us, then they will bring us down. And, and, and I think these are the key things to delineate the big picture from the, the small action. And, and, and my good friend John, who's the um, John McBain in WA, he's a uh, indigenous uh, leader over in WA in the Community Gardens Network, the one thing he said to me at the, a big community gardens gathering recently, uh, he said, it's all about, he said, he said there's, there's a big difference and, and he put one letter in to the word reconciliation and he said it's reconciliation and we need to be do making actions that reflect the words that we're saying. And when we're taking action every day, then those words amplify and we bring a collective, which then, then um, becomes exponential. That, that's sort of the framework that I view it. And then that way I wake up every day and I'm as positive and energised as I was yesterday. Mm. If not, actually I'm more because I feel the, the mathematics of yesterday building. I do, I do feel as though... Some people believe that you need to be hopeful to get action, to get active. And I actually been it's been my experience that you don't earn hope until you're useful. And once you make yourself useful in a small way, in a local way, in something that's commensurate with your talents, your privilege, your networks, that actually that's the beginnings of hope. Hope doesn't kind of it's in the doing. It's not an abstract kind of. Um, philosophical idea it's, it's something that's actually in the action but Maddie I'd love to hear from you on this subject of the role of indigenous knowledge in 
climate action. And I, I know that's a huge subject, but also that it's something that's very, um, you know, the, the, the way in which Indigenous knowledge plays into different structures of design and different kinds of um, decision-making processes is really important to you particularly. Can you talk to that point? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, firstly, Indigenous peoples are more disproportionately affected by climate change than other peoples. Um, and on this day four years ago, I was in Micronesia um, doing some archaeological field work. And on our day off, we helped um, a local ecologist uh, to go around to community tarot patches and record the salinity of those tarot patches because uh, the salt water was ingressing in the groundwater. And that was then impacting on their staple food, the tarot. Um, and so, you know, these sorts of big global things are local issues also and they impact on Indigenous people um, but I think for me I have a lot of hope because of my learnings um, because of what my elders teach me and one of those things is that not only are we capable of loving country and caring for country or nature it's that country is in turn of in turn capable of loving us and caring for us and so I take um a great deal of solace like of I take a great deal of comfort in knowing that when I'm feeling distressed or feeling anxious about this future that we're looking at and it's not really a future it's a reality it's, it's what's happening now you know those people at Yap that I met who were climate refugees who had to move from the outer islands onto the larger island because they could no longer sustain their life ways um you know so we think about the future but it's it's the now um but I take a lot of comfort in knowing that that country can care for me in those times and as we've all discussed you know the ways in which country shows its love to you and it might be in the flowers that are blooming it might be in the wind it might be in listening to the crash of the ocean and all of those things are country showing its love for you and showing you its care um, so that's something that I think is really important to me um, but then you know I also have a responsibility then to care for country as we all do as every person has a responsibility and so I think that's you know the call to action for me is what what is in my sphere of influence and what is in my sphere of power because I can't stop climate change nobody no one individual can but we all have a sphere in which we work and which we have influence and that might be planting something in your garden and that might be writing to a minister that might be in the work that you do as somebody who works in policy or you know somebody with 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 political influence I think that we all have um you know an opportunity to care for country in, in different ways so I think that we shouldn't feel that it is on our shoulders it's too heavy a burden um and it's a burden that we all share but there is in that caring for country and doing your part, you have to accept the love that country is sending your way. That's a 
wonderful message of reciprocity as well to have an individual relationship with country but also to have the sense that there's something that's coming back to you as well if you have the right antenna for it emotionally culturally or sensorially I guess as well but thank you Maddie that's a really powerful thought we're going to close the conversation today with the question what is one thing that listeners can do for nature this is something that the Victorian Nature Festival has asked us to talk about so um, I'm going to ask each of our guests in turn for a tip that they would give to the listeners how to act for nature in this moment let's start with Costa Ah, okay. Well, I would say that participating in some of the wonderful citizen science projects that we can all access readily and that are spread across the year, for example, the big backyard bird count or the wild pollinator count, or at the moment uh, in the month of September, there's the backyard survey. We can all get involved with iNaturalist or quest a game if we've got, I mean, that's available for any age, but it's particularly great for, 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 for students and young people that actually go out and find, find what's living and, and, and existing in your local ecosystem when, as Maddie said, you open your eyes and start to see and hear these things. Um, all of these platforms are, are a wonderful way for us to not say, oh, the environment's being slowly eroded and damaged by a thousand cuts. We can actually participate and engage in its repair because we don't have enough scientists to study every backyard and every street and every suburb, but we have some, so many people, so many families, so many individuals living in these places and, and this data that we collect then goes to places like with the Frog ID app, that goes to the Australian Museum and it says, oh, okay, we have frogs in, in, you know, in, in Bondi where I live on Gadigal and Bidigal country. On the map, there it is, registered. And when I contribute to the wild pollinator count and I see blue-banded bees or green cuckoo bees, whatever the different things are. So I, I think these... These projects are, are wonderful ways that we can put science into the equation and, and really step away from not just feel good, but to actually do good that will then benefit and exponentially increase the amount of information that we have. And, and then you can connect with projects like the, 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 the Heart Gardening Project in Melbourne that's all about connecting pollinator highways through the suburbs and the similar things going on up here in Sydney. So these things are being led by individuals who connect with their community. And when we think in those terms and think, who do we know? We all know a lot of people and we can share this love of nature because we are nature. And we're really just showing the love of ourselves and of country and then we're, we're supporting and recognising that love that's been reflected on country and is reflecting back to us through those who have gone before us. Wonderful. Citizen science, project, science projects from Costa there. Sandro? Well, I think as a doctor, I would say embracing nature is also, you know, a really great part of your weekly health routine. Uh, a study of 
almost 20,000 people from Europe, uh, from the European Centre for Environment and Human Health showed that if you can find two hours in your week as you come out of lockdown and you create a new routine in your life, if you can find two hours a week in green spaces, local parks or natural environment, uh, either all at once or spaced over several visits, that this two hours will substantially uh, improve or have a, have a significant impact on your psychological and physical health. We know that it can affect your blood pressure, your stress hormones, re reduce nervous system arousal, enhance even your immune system, um, increase self-esteem, reduce anxiety and improve mood. So I think, you know, a as a doctor, my message would be, you know, think of your dose of nature as part of your contribution to the wider planet. Think of it as, um, you know, something that is enjoyable to do, but also remember that it is something that is so great and so important for your own mental and physical health. That's a wonderful prescription. Thank you, Maddie. I think, well, I've been getting really interested in creative responses to nature. And so at the moment I'm, I'm doing my natural dyes and, you know, perhaps something that's something people might be interested in doing, whether it's collecting bark like I was or using turmeric or things that you can find in your cupboard. Um, also, when you were talking about the animals that you've been picking up um, that sort of I had memories of growing up my mum was a wildlife carer and I shared my bedroom with kangaroos and <laughs> magpies and magpies are my favorite bird and I know that some people don't like that some of them swoop not all of them but I think they're very funny and so you know noticing the personalities of, of the birds that visit your backyard or your local park and you know maybe writing a story about them or thinking of you know uh, thinking about what they get up to and having creative responses and having fun with nature. I love that idea. You know, when Costa was talking about putting up the mural in the hospital, I was thinking, what is the effect on the artist of painting that forest in addition to what is the effect on the patient? Because it does seem like the artistic response is also a kind of therapeutic approach to nature. In the first lockdown, well, last year in late 2020, I was stuck in London and um, one of the things that we did in that lockdown was we got a tiny little ultrasonic bat detector <laughs> and we went out at night looking for wildlife, which, um, you know, in terms of making a connection with the natural world, I think expanding the parameters of, you know, when you walk as well and seeing what the dawn chorus is like or seeing what the nocturnal life is like in, in your neighbourhood, you can, um, you know, not just if you're confined to five kilometres, then find different periods of time in which to visit with nature as well. It has been so fantastic to hear from our three guests today, um, Costa, Maddie, Sandro, thank you so much for your contributions and thoughts on how we might better connect with nature in this period of time. Readings Bookstore has two wonderful books uh, written by, I guess, that we, you should pick up at some point. So Sandro's The Doctor Diet and Costa's World, um, available online. Maddie has an audio installation called Emu Sky on at the moment, or it will be when we come out of lockdown. It's at the Old Quad in Melbourne University. Maddie, would you just very briefly say something about that before we leave? Sure. So Emu Sky is a show curated by and with 
all of the artists being Indigenous people. Um, and my, my part of this exhibition is a small audio installation um, where I have interviewed four wonderful First Nations women about their connection to country um, and their ecological, their knowledges of ecology on country. And that's located just outside of the old quad in these beautiful listening spaces that we've created surrounded by baby river red gums and the audio installation is interactive it asks you after you listen to write your message for those baby river red gums and we will burn them in a fire pit created by Arnie Vicky Cousins and the ashes from your messages will be buried on country with those river red gums and hopefully they will live for another thousand years. Oh, that sounds like such a powerful experience. I'm so looking forward to seeing that once we get, yeah. <laughs> once these restrictions ease. Thank yeah. you so much. I've been Rebecca Giggs. Uh, I also have a book that's out at the moment. It's called Fathoms, The World in the Whale. I must put a gratuitous plug in the tail <laughs> end of this conversation for that book at all good independent bookstores. Thank you so much to all of our guests, to the Wheeler Centre, to Victoria's Nature Festival, and thanks for listening. That was Rebecca Giggs in conversation with Maddie Miller, Sandro DeMaio and Costa Georgiadis on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This episode was presented in partnership with the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and the Victoria Nature Festival. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.